or my partner. Just lost the spot. Wait one second, sorry. Wait one second. Sorry, you guys. No, I don't. Doc, you don't have a Doc, do you have a pencil? Debbie, was it you? Yes. Um, it's my friend Jamie who I've Jamie? Jamie. 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 J A N I E. Uh -huh. um, and her husband Kent. Um, she's the one who has ALS and mm -hmm. she's coming to the end. And it's That's a not disease. good. It's just not good. What's the ALS? Oh, a Lou Gehrig's disease. Um, okay. And, and she's, she just wants to die. and. And How old is she? She just turned 60. Yeah. Um, okay. And, and it's, it, it's a horrible strain on her husband. I mean, he, I'm sure. He is exhausted. Yeah, I'm sure. And it's, sure. it's just not good. Yeah. Fred, I'm sorry. Uh, my partner, just Terry, Terry, lost his father this week. Um, what's his dad's name? Do I know? don't know what his first name is. Mr. Lee? Funny. Terry's. Anybody else? Amy and um, Rowan. Yeah, I've got him on my mind. Lois, yeah. For Thanksgiving for new grandson. Oh! oh congratulations. congratulations. What's his name? John Theodore. John Theodore? They're going to call him Teddy, but I'm going to call him JT. <laughs> but John is my husband's name. JT? Yeah. Biblical names everywhere. Theodore. Isn't that love of God? Theodius, the, I think. Um, name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our lives, for the gift of yourself this morning in the Mass, your words to us. Um, thank you, Paul, God, for um, all you did, all you do. How amazing that your voice is, takes a living form for us today, that you remind us that um, our day-to-day -day living is full of hardships. has to be. We're in a fall. We live in a world that wants to pretend that we can do away with them as if we could make a heaven and earth. Generally, when people do that, it makes a hell here. Um, our world is full of hardships every day. I'm, this is, sorry, I hope this is for, Help us to be careful of expectations, because when we expect a heaven here and we don't get it, we don't always act the way we should. Easy to blame others, easy to fault others. We just want too much. Um, your words make it clear, Paul, that we, uh, we bear hardship here, but um, we have these gifts from Christ to endure, um, um, to grow in humility, in faith, as we do. So I'd say a prayer for all of us, that we all be strengthened in that effort, each one of us, um, to trust in the crosses that we carry, knowing um, that we're growing, hopefully in humility and closer to you. Um, <clears throat> ask a special blessing on Janie Ken. Her husband's name is Kent. Kent. Um, for both of them, um, 
ill-prepared um, Janie um, quiet her heart. Um, it's got to be a terror when, particularly when death comes and it's not easy. Um, help her to find you in this darkness. See a light, truly, to grasp you and to take a strength, um, to grow in faith so that this passing can be good um, instead of just all painful. And I ask a special blessing on Ken. It's got to be, in some ways, in a different way, harder for him. He can't do anything except watch. Same with him. Let his, any way in which he can give himself to this, um, to find a cross in it and join her, um, to be with her and with you. So he will have a trust and a quiet in his own heart. Help them both to do that, please. Um, <coughs> ask a blessing on um, Fred's partner, Terry. Um, receive his father into your kingdom. Forgive his sins, um, um, whatever they are. Um, help prepare him to see you. Um, let him know the joy um, of being in your presence. Um, help Terry at some point, I don't know what his beliefs are, but help him to make a place for this. If he didn't, help him do it so that there will be a growing in him in a faith um, to be trusting to, through this death, to find himself being drawn more closely to you. It should happen for all of us and people that we let die. Ask us. Um, and thanksgiving for JT, um, that little boy. Um, let the joy that the parents and grandparents and friends um, know right now increase. Um, help them to bring an increased joy to all that they do with this young boy and help him, to, all that they do, get him ready to stand with you as a friend, take you to the world as he grows older. Ask a blessing too for our daughter Amy and our grandson um, Rowan in their travels today. See them safely there to Boston, keep them safe, let no harm come to them. Um, protect them while they're there, please, and see them safely home. We offer all of these prayers, Lord Christ. Um, Amen. Amen. <coughs> okay, um, can you take out the wreck? Wreck of the Dutchland. Let's do the second. Remember, I'm, gonna, I'm trying to do as little commentary on this. I'm just trying to let it read for itself. And, um, Just a reminder, remember um, um, Germany had enacted these Falk laws um, and through them they were able to confiscate church properties and send Catholics into exile. They were disenfranchised and sent away. 
this group of five nuns was um, um, on board a ship heading towards America, I'm assuming for a new life. I mean, the opportunities, the protections they knew that thought they would get here. They were headed um, from the north of Europe towards England to go north around the islands and then head off to America. The ship had made that, that journey numerous times. But they hit a storm and the storm drove them south and into the opening of the Thames. And the, when the Thames empties out into the North Sea, it, there are shoals everywhere. And it's a place where accidents, historically, had happened forever. So they got stuck on this shoal and the storm just battered them. And I think almost half the crew drowned, including these five nuns. When Hopkins got the news of this, he was so disturbed. Now, put this into context. I went over the Tractarian movement, right? The, the, the Tractarians tended to be Anglican High Church members who were um, associated with Oxford. And they were really upset because the church had become too liberal, too, too lax, latitudinarian. And they really believed that the, the church was losing Christ in some way. All of them were Protestants, all of them Anglican. Now remember this, because we've gone through this. Um, you remember what happened in the break-off with the Reformation, that, that the church broke from Rome, the English church broke from Rome. Henley declared himself the head of it and made himself the head of the church and formed what was virtually the Anglican church. It looked back to Catholicism, it had the same practices, but it identified with England and the crown, not the pope. And the other reformers turned away from the sacraments, generally, the Presbyterians, the Methodists, the Evangelicals, the Protestants, all of, I mean the um, Puritans. So that you've got the hang, high Anglicans and the rest of the Protestant church. The low church, the, the essential difference between them is that the Anglicans still practice the, make a place for the sacraments. All the others don't. So you've got that division with the Protestant, the low church breaking down, fragmenting into different denominations. The Puritans um, were thought to be the most rebellious. They went to the Netherlands to practice their faith and things didn't work out there and they headed to America. That's our founding, that Puritan founding. Basically Calvinistic in belief, okay? <coughs> during, the during the Elizabethan settlement, Elizabeth tried to settle these disputes by what's called a media, via media, the middle way. It was an attempt to compromise, to make a compromise so that the Anglicans and the low churches could not tear each other apart. You remember during Milton's time when um, the Anglicans wanted to defeat the Scots Presbyterian and make them conform with their way, and the Scots Presbyterians wanted to defeat the Anglicans make them, and they were both willing to use political power to accomplish that end. Because once Henry said, head of the church, church and state became fused. So what got passed on from that Elizabethan settlement is the, the Church of England with these tensions existing in it. High church, the Anglican, and the low church. Okay. So mid-1850s, the church is in a crisis. The, the people, the, the, the well-educated people from Oxford are upset at, the, at what they see as an, a liberal church, a church that's too soft. So a group of those men 
start writing tracks. It's a, it's a public debate. It's, a, it's an acknowledgement of a, of a crisis. It's called the Tractarian Movement. And what happened in that movement is that a number of those men realized that the problem wasn't um, in reforming the church. The problem was deeper than that. The problem was that, um, that the Anglican Church and the other Reformed churches um, built in a problem by breaking from Rome. The fundamental problem was authority for all of them. If Henry could break off and declare himself the head of the church on matters of doctrine, then who couldn't? What he did was make belief political. I mean, he put himself as head over the church and strengthened the sense that um, what defined people was their English national character. Um, and the, I mean, you can see the difference. The fundamental difference is Henry, Henry is king over a nation. The Pope is ruler of a world irrespective of its national identity. So the faith represents a higher, a more transcendent condition. Um, it stands the same way to all nations. Um, so the, the reform or the men who were writing these tracts saw that the fundamental problem was in authority and a break from Rome. And when they saw that, a large number of them converted. John Henry Newman was the most important. And if you know anything about that movement, you know that when Newman comes out of that, he's writing about fundamental differences between the Protestant and Catholic worlds. Um, the development of church doctrine, things like that, because that was a serious issue for the, the uh, Protestant. How did the Catholic make all of these changes, like the substanti or transubstantiation, transubstantiation, virgin birth, things like that? Newman was arguing that the, that the developments that you see in the church are a development of germs already there. They just take on a life and grow. So the development of Christian doctrine was an important work. Twenty years after Newman's conversion, um, Gerard Manley Hopkins converts. Um, he, came, he came to see that the, the problem was the same, it was a problem in authority, and he realized that he couldn't stay in the Anglican Church anymore. He said it was impossible to go back once he saw what was at issue. He was raised Anglican. His family was Anglican. Um, it, it, it made for a serious estrangement between him and his parents, his family. And, and what made it worse is that when people like Newman converted, this is really embarrassing to read. I mean, it really is shameful. When you watch the English respond to Newman, they looked at him as an infidel, a betrayer, that he was betraying his people. There were liable suits brought against him, um, making accusations that were just absolutely baseless. But you can see this prejudice that he's bad, that he's not a good person. And so um, 20 years later, Hopkins converts he knows he can't go back to the Anglican Church any longer. It's, it leaves a terrible strain between him and his parents, but he doesn't. And shortly after that, he decides to become a priest. And when he does, he, he, he commits himself to the Jesuit order. If you know anything about the Jesuits, you know back in Elizabeth's time, the Jesuits had traveled to England in the hopes of bringing her back into the fold. And they were persecuted badly 
some people believe, I'm not sure about, I mean, I may be getting the facts wrong in this. I, I think there was a suspicion that the Jesuits were involved in the gunpowder plot to, to destroy bomb the palace. And, um, but the Jesuits were hated by the English, um, driven underground, persecuted, killed. Um, this is 1850. When, when Hopkins decides to become a Jesuit, in one sense, that's a commitment to, to, conform, to, um, to convert England. The ordination ceremony had to be held in secret because they, they, they weren't allowed to practice openly in the country. It had to be done in secret. And when they passed the Catholic Emancipation Act, I think sometime in the 20th century, in the mid-century, mid 19 some, I can't remember when that was passed, Catholic Emancipation. Imagine Catholic Emancipation. One of, one of the sub-clauses of that um, Catholic Emancipation excluded the Jesuits. I mean, the animosity towards that order was so great. So, but it was, it was Hopkins' order. So keep those two things together here. It's important to do that. He writes the wreck, um, I think, just before his ordination. So he, he knows he's already going to God. He's already made a conversion. In that opening section, the, the part one, where he talks about flying to the host, he's already received the host. So it's an intense... Christ, personal crisis in his life. He, we know that he, he, had, he went on retreats and they had to have been in some ways emotionally overwhelming because this was a huge change for him. So, as I said last time, the first part of the wreck, wreck of the Deutschland, Deutschland, the, the irony of that title, Deutschland, German land. It refers to the ship. It can also indirectly refer to Germany, the Falklands, that they're persecuting Catholics. Um, in the opening, he's describing his own personal crisis, the, the flying to the host and what happened, and his sense of God overmastering everything in control of the ocean and the waves, and how could God allow such a horrendous thing to happen? These five nuns were seeking their freedom and they're killed. So two things are, are, are coming together. One is this personal crisis, um, the other this news. The, these five nuns had been forced into exile and were killed, sadly. <clears throat> so, just, I'm gonna read the second part now, the, or the 10 stanzas in the second, and we'll finish the wreck next week. Um, it's really important to keep this in mind. The wreck of the Deutschland has the form of a fugue. It, it's analogies, it's interesting the way poets do this. Eliot did this with four quartets. It's a, it's a different analogy, an analog, but the, the analog here is a fugue. A fugue, if you listen to Bach's fugues, you know that a fugue consists of, of two voices generally. One voice that announces a theme, and then a second voice that comes in to enrich it and then the two voices are resolved. That's the nature of a fugue, except it's musical. When you hear, and so there's nobody articulating, there's, you don't hear language, you hear sounds, a harmony, declaring something, and then another voice coming in to add to that, and then the two coming together 
in, in what is something of a resolution. Now keep that in mind. So the first part is, deals with Hopkins and his personal struggles. We read that last week. Second part begins with a narrative of the events that took place on board the, the Deutschland, the ship when it sets out and what happens. I'm saying this right now because this is what's going to happen. I don't want to give it away because I'm going to ask you guys, you guys read this because I'm giving you a test next week. <laughs> one day I'm going to do this. You know, one day I'm going to do it. Um, giving you a test next week. First voice, the second voice, the narrative of the ship. There's a point, because there's only two parts, the first and this long second part. There's a point in the second part in which those two voices come together. To me, it's one of the most powerful moments I've ever experienced in all my life as somebody reading, struggling to read poetry. Those two voices come together. So a fugue, a voice announcing a theme, a second voice, an elaboration on it, a deepening, and then a resolution. So first section is Hopkins, this personal crisis, the second, the narrative of the ship. There's a point of crisis in which both of those voices come together. See if you can find it and understand what's going on in that moment. Because it speaks directly, it speaks directly to our faith and how we live it. Okay? Um, remember this is not a narrative, it's an ode, it's a lyric. An ode is, is a poem, a lyric written for a public occasion. So it's an ode. Um, okay? Part two. Sure, I'm Manly Hopkins. <clears throat> some find me a sword, some the flang, and some the rail. Flame, fang, or flood goes death on drum. So the first image opening, the second part, is this image of death coming with these instruments announcing his, um, his arrival. Goes death on drum, and storms bugle his fame. But we dream we are rooted in earth, dust, Flesh falls within sight of us. We, though our flower the same, wave with the meadow, forget that there must the sour scythe cringe and the blear share come. This is Boethius. We're all going to die. Everything we're doing should prepare us for death. We're all going to die. The scythe is cutting the grass. We're like the grass. It's always cutting over us. On Saturday sailed from Bremen, American outward bound, take settler and seamen, tall men with women, two hundred souls in the round. O oh, Father, not under thy feather, nor ever is guessing, the goal was a shoal of a fourth the doom to be drowned. Yet did the dark side of the bay of thy blessing not vault them, the millions of rounds of thy mercy not reeve even them in? You let this happen, did you not much for mercy spare them? Into the snow she sweeps, hurling the haven behind the Deutschland on Sunday. So the sky keeps, for the infinite air is unkind, and the sea flint flake, black backed in the regular blow. Sitting east northeast, in cursed quarter, the wind wiring white fire and whirlwind swiveled snow spins to the widow-making, unchilding, unfathering deeps. I hope you hear, remember, we, I talked talk about this, right? The alliteration, the, he's going back to alliterative verse. I talked about it, the combination of syllabic verse and alliter. 
Listen to the alliteration. And assonance, assonance means um, internal rhymes with vowels. Assonance or vowels, the, the chiming of that. Because so often what he's doing in the language is trying to imitate what's going on. The harshness, the winds, the blowing, to create that sense of, what's the word, a kind of orchestral pounding. You know, you're in the midst of a storm, so the language is meant to convey or help us to experience that immediately. Sitting northeast, northeast, in cursed quarter, the wind wiry and white fiery and whirlwind swiveled snow. You can hear the chiming of assonance, and you can also hear the alliteration, the pounding. <coughs> Spins to the widow making unchiding, unchilding, unfathering deeps. It's taking away life, unchilding, unfathering. She drove in the dark to leeward. She struck not a reef or a rock, but the combs of a smother of sand. Night drew her dead to the Kenish knock, and she beat the bank down with her bows and the right of her keel. The breakers rolled on her beam with ruinous shock and canvas and compass, the whorl and the wheel idle forever to waft her or wind her with, these she endured. Hope had grown, gray hairs hope had mourning on, trenched with tears, carved with cares. Hope was twelve hours gone and frightful a nightfall, folded, rueful a day, nor rescue, only rocket and lightship shone, and lives at last were washing away. To the shroud they took, they shook in the hurling and horrible airs. They kept sending up rockets, but they were too far away. Help was too far away, and, and nobody was going to risk the storm to come help anyway. So they're isolated. They're just getting beaten by this storm. <clears throat> um, one takes to the shrouds. You know, they climb the, they take a, a rope to go up the mast. One stirred from the rig rigging to save the wild woman, kind below, with the rope's end round the man, handy and brave. He was pitched to his death at a blow. For all his dreadnought breast and braids of thew, they could tell him for hours, dandled to, the f to and fro through the cobbled foam fleece. Dandled is the word you use to describe a, f describe a father dandling a child on its knee. I hope everybody gets this because the, the sense is that this is our father. This guy is hanging from a rope. He's dead. He's just been, you know, he's hit a, you know, hit a master. He's dangling there. He, he wanted to come down to save the woman. He's dangling and we're, they're watching him get tossed. But the word he used, and, and look at the cobbled foam fleece. Foam fleece is soft. Look at the air in a storm, foam fleece. But it's cobbled. Hit it, it's like hitting stone. So look at the language. I mean, he's, he, there's a lovely sense of paradox here that this is the father, a father of mercy, um, and he uses the word dandel when this guy's. I hope you see the irony. This is, so this God is not an unmerciful God. This is a merciful God. But we so often, we, we've talked about this forever, we so often see things the wrong way. It's hard for us to see paradoxes, things join. Our tendency is to separate them. Death is bad. Buitis, I hope, chase some of that away. You know, death is bad. Death is supposed to be an opening. So 
here he is again, like so many of the poets, using a language that is asking us to see dual instead of one or the other. He was pitched to his death at a blow for all his dreadnought breast and braids of thew. They could tell him for hours, dandled the to and fro through the cobbled foam fleece. What could he do with the burl of the fountain of air, buck and the flood of the wave? They fought with God's cold, and they could not, and fell to the deck, crushed them, or water, and drowned them, or rolled with the sea romp, look at that word, over the, this is a storm, and he uses the word like romp, you know, it's, um, with the sea romp over the wreck, night roared with the heartbreak hearing a heartbroke rabble, the woman's wailing, the crying of child without check, Till a lioness arose, breasting the babble, a prophetess towered in the tumult, a virginal tongue told. So out of this mess and confusion, and think, the sailors are veterans, they're weathered in this. Here's this nun who has no experience of being at sea in storms, and she rises up. She's described as being like a lion in the midst of this babble confusion. But notice what happens now when this woman appears in the narrative. Right at this moment is the imaginer, and, and, and as some of the reports confirm, right at that moment when she enters the poem, this is what happens. Ah, touched in your bower of bone are you, turned for an exquisite smart, have you? Make words break for me here all alone, do you, mother of being in me, heart? Oh, unteachably after evil, but uttering truth, why tears? Is it tears? Such a melting, a madrigal start. Never eldering revel in river of youth. What can it be, this glee, the good you have there of your own? So right at the moment he introduces this, he starts scathing himself. Oh, you're a sensitive soul, are you? You see all this, you're so sensitive. You know how we get, I mean, sometimes when we're good, our focus sometimes, sadly, is, is on the good we're doing instead of, I mean, on ourselves doing that good instead of the good. So he's going, oh, you're a sensitive soul, are you? You're seeing this, how, you know, how good you are. He's just scathing himself right now. He's racking himself with the cold. Uh, touched in the bower of bone, are you turned for? Because she's weathering the storm, he's at home writing about it. And the discrepancy... Um, makes him aware of something in himself that he's right now at this moment not happy with the you know sensitive or because remember if a poet's going to do a job this is i think this is why poets get close to sainthood they've got to so relate to the condition that they're writing that they've got to live it that takes a lot of courage it's one of the reasons people don't write because to go there puts you at risk and his response at this moment oh sensitive are you you know just um, as he's writing, and then he returns. Sister, a sister calling, a master, her master and mine. And the inboard seas run swirling and hauling, the rash smart sloggering brine blinds her. But she that weather sees one thing, one, has one fetch in her. She rears herself to divine ears in the call of the tall nun, to the men in the tops and the tackle road over the storms brawling. She was the first of a five and came of a coiffed sisterhood. O Dutchland, double a desperate name, O worldwide of its good. But Gertrude, Lily, and Luther are two of a town. Both of them come from the same town. St. Gertrude, 
the lily and Luther. It's, it's again, we saw this in Dante Emmer, both of them come from the same town. They have the same inheritance, except they couldn't be more different. Gertrude was a saint, Luther was <coughs> just a mean, arrogant, if you've read his things, you, you'll know how arrogant he was. And so he's seen both of these, but aware of the differences, the contrast between them. Oh, Deutschland. Deutschland, remember, means German land. This is Germany. Oh, Deutschland. Double a desperate name, because remember, it's the ship. It's, all, it's also the nation, and the wreck of the Deutschland may have multiple levels of meaning here. <coughs> oh, Oh, Deutschland, double a desperate name, O oh, worldwide of its good. But Gertrude, Lily, and Luther are two of a town, Christ's lily and beast of the waste wood. From life's dawn it is drawn down, Abel is Cain's brother, and breast they have sucked the same. So he's meditating on Germany and the ship and this this double character to our life, the fact that there's a beast in us and something holy. Um, and right now he's admiring the sister for the courage that she's showing and standing up to the storm. Loath for a love men knew in them, banned by the land of their birth, Rhine refusing, remember this group of five nuns. Thames would ruin them, surf snow, and it's interesting. <laughs> so they set out from Germany and the Thames, the Thames which is English, destroys them. How is that for a, an image? Rhine refused them, Thames would ruin them, surf, snow, river, and earth gnashed. But thou art above, thou orient of light, thy unchanceling poisoned, poising palms were weighing the worth. Thou martyr master, in thy sight storm flakes were scroll leave flowers, lily showers, sweet heaven was a them. How is that for an image? He's describing a storm in terms of scrolly flowers, lily showers. Sweet heaven was... So in the midst... So while other people are only seeing storm winds that are dis absolutely destructive, they're taking life away, he's seeing a grace in it somewhere for, the, for these women. Okay. <clears throat> if you all would read the rest, there's only... About another ten stanzas to go, and we'll finish it next week. And but read it, see if you can find. So you can do well on the quiz I'm going to give. Okay. Um, that, um, does you know that we're we're going to do Dostoevsky's Brothers next year? I've got an extra copy here that's cheaper than the ones. If anybody hasn't got a copy and you want it, you can have this one. <coughs> It's actually a better copy, it's hard math. Um, I want to read this um, before we start because I want you to hear this. Um, pull out the poetry packet and take a look at the Old English section in Chaucer. Do you have it, Doc? <coughs> I've been meaning to do this. I keep getting... I'm not talking about that. No, that's the one, I, but I you feel that, but no, the Chaucer, the, midi, the medieval thing. That you, there's two things. One of them is the is included in the poetry packet with the medieval lyrics. 
There's a section there from Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. It's the opening of the prologue, and it's in Middle English. The one that's the original text and the modern text? That's one of them, but the other is in the poetry packet. It's in the poems with the medieval lyrics, with Shakespeare and John Donne and the rest. Get the Chaucer piece. Do you have it? Do you have it, Debbie? Um, hold on. It's on page three or four of my page numbers. You had it last week, what did you? Oh, here. Like it's page five. No, 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 no. That's that's the scansion. Can I? Yeah, sure. Can I? Just Chaucer. Yeah, it's in the poetry packet with the medieval lyrics and psalms and don't don't worry about it, just listen. If you've got Chaucer with you, open to the prologue. If you don't <coughs> here, I'm gonna read it. Leave your note, just just listen. Remember in Chaucer Here, we've got, do you have anyone here? Take a look. Just, if you could just leave these here, because we've got to try to sell them here, but you can share these. This is Chaucer. You've got it. just going to read it in Old English. Take a look, take a look at the opening of the prologue on page, on the first page, prologue. When in April the sweet showers fall and pierce the draught of March to the root and all, it's got, you know, that. Look. Oh, I'm just going to listen. Here's the, here's the Middle English. I, I think I've read this to you before. I just love it because you can, you can, you can, you can hear faintly our English language, but it's hidden in something Germanic and Welsh and, you know, a combination of things in English at this time. So this is 1400. This is 200 years before Shakespeare. So if I were to read Shakespeare in 1600 English, it would be our language, but it would have inflections and tones resembling Chaucer's, okay? Here's the opening lines to Canterbury Tales, the, the prologue. Quandar aprili with his shoulders suta, the drof of match has pierced to the rota, and bathed every vein in sweet liquor, of which virtue engendered is the flora. One's everest eke with his sweet breath, in spark hath in every halt and heath, the tundra croppers and the young sun, hath in the rom his havely cours irona, and small fallies make in merry day, that sleep in all the nick with open yea. So pricketh him nature in her courages, and longing folk to go on pilgrimages, and palmeres for to seek in strong strondes, to ferner halwes kuta in sondre londes, and specially from every shiris ender of Ingolanda to Canterbury they wender, the holy blissful martyr for to seeke, that him hath holpen, Juan that they were seeke. Befairly net season ony day, in soot work at the Talbert as he lay, ready to wend in on my pilgrimages to Canterbury with full devout courage. <laughs>
It would be something like that. Sorry? Difficult translation that we have. Sorry, but say again. In translation. You should have your poetry back. Here, okay. You originally had a But you can't with English because the English translation is modern. It's us. What I want you to hear is Chaucer's poetry. Um, take out the other text. I'll, this is the thing from the Knight's Tale. That's the one we have. This is Debbie's? Yes. Oh, sorry. It's getting worse and worse and worse. It's humiliation, it's not pain. Um, I've got one, Doc. <laughs> what do you call the women who look after you? This the, one? Nanny? Yeah, if anybody knows of good nannies, Suzanne and I are both looking for one. <laughs> closer and closer. <laughs> oh, God. We, we both walk around knowing that we've got, each one of us has half a brain. We're just hoping that the two have complement each other instead of <laughs> duplicating, because if they duplicate, they're still a half missing. <laughs> two left brains, that's not good. No. <laughs> okay. This is, you all have this from, uh, from the Night's Tale, yeah? This single page? Shifali doesn't have one, Doc. Do you have an extra? Which, yes, this. Who needs one? Anybody else? Is that all there? Is there any more done? Okay, I'm going to read this because I want to go. So if you could do this quietly, I want to, I'm going to start. We've got to go. So this is from The Knight's Tale, okay? Wanderasita to Thebes Komen was a full of it a day, he swept and said, Alasa, for seeing his lady shall he never more, and shortly to concluding all his woe. So much a sorrow had never a creature that is or shall will that the world may dure. His sleeper, his meter, his drinker, is him bereft, that lane he walks and dray as is a shaft. His iron holware and grisly to beholder, his hue falwer and paler as ashen colder. In solitary he was and ever alone, and wailing all the nick, making his mourner. I'm going to stop, but it would be something like that. Um, now remember, Shakespeare's only 200 years later. Yes. When we read Shakespeare, we read him in our modern. It would be clear because his language is closer to ours. But and I don't. I I I've not heard any. But I did. I mean, I did some work in medieval studies in my graduate program. I didn't hear anybody ever read Renaissance English in the original. Um, so somewhere between Chaucer and our tongue is Shakespeare, okay? Wow. Okay. <laughs> it's, hard, it's hard to imagine. Shakespeare. You know, you're starting to understand what you're doing. 
Okay, I want to do this as quickly as I can. We've done the rep. Um, one of the most important things to take away from Boethius is this notion that all fortune is good. All fortune is good. Um, it seems to me two of the principal things to take away is all fortune is good and it's good because God is a good God and there's nothing that he does, um, there's nothing that he sees that isn't good. Evil is outside him. Um, remember, um, e <clears throat> the Zoroastrians who believe in good and evil, these Eastern philosophies that good and evil are co-eternal, that makes no nonsense, I mean no sense at all. If good and evil are eternal, there's no reason for not choosing one over the other or seeing that they're both combined, which is what the Eastern mind does. They're, they're intertwined. For us, if God is being, and he says he is, I am that am, that was the name he gave um, Abram. If he's being itself, there is nothing outside of him. He is what is. There is nothing else. Evil has to be a privation, a, a loss, a turning away from him. And if somebody turns from being, um, it, turns from the, it turns from the source of its own life. It loses its own life. That's what Boyd could say, being good is um, health-giving and strong, and being evil means taking away your health and undoing yourself and becoming weak. Remember that logic, that logical statement he, he made in one of the chapters. So Boethius makes this distinction between providence and fate, that God's seat stands outside of all things and he can see them all at once. People who are caught up in time see a different way. So one of the things he was trying to, Lady Philosophy was trying to show Boethius at the end is so much of what happens to us depends on how we see things. And she distinguished between those different ways of knowing. The senses, the imagination, reason or ratio, or understanding or intellectus. Remember, senses see only matter, the imagination, um, shape without matter, reason is one thing at a time, parts, and intellectus or understanding is the whole. And he made that important distinction between perpetuity, all things unfolding in sequence, and eternity. God is in eternity. God has no foresight because there is no past or future for him. He just sees. And the major question that was asked at the end is, if God foresees things, does that predetermine them? Do they happen out of necessity? And Boethius is making the argument that the fact that he sees them does not foreordain them or necessitate them. God just sees. <clears throat> so he's doing everything he can to protect man's free will Boethius is, and so is God. <clears throat> so God can intervene in the world, but it doesn't mean he's necessarily determining things here. God's allowing a freedom. He works with what we do. The great two themes, the major themes of the Canterbury Tales as a whole work, um, is the unity of the Catholic faith um, and the fact that everybody is together on this pilgrimage. The Canterbury Tales is an epic. It belongs to the epic tradition. Faulkner's showing an entire nation on a pilgrimage to St. Thomas's shrine. 
They're all united in their faith, um, and practically a whole nation is there. The only ones missing are royalty, interesting to me. But everybody else, every class of people is there. They're all united. It's, this is one of the beauties, I think, of, of Canterbury Tales. They're all united by their faith. If you watch them interact with each other, they can be so mean-spirited and so vicious. One person will tell, the, the monk will tell the tale on the friar, and the friar to get back with him will tell a nasty tale about a monk. I mean, they, they're just mean-spirited often. Chaucer talks about everything. He adultery happens everywhere, all the time, in this thing. He has no scruples about using ass or fart or um, because the Catholic makes a place for the body. It's just, it's not something to be ashamed of. That's, that waits on a Puritan world. It's a couple of hundred years off. So, <clears throat> in Canterbury Tales, we're watching a nation on a pilgrimage. And you know that St. Thomas Becket was assassinated. Um, Henry was trying to take control of the clergy, actually appointed Becket as a bishop, and then he became chancellor, and Becket underwent a change, and he got more strict. Henry was trying to gain control of the, of the bishops, and the priesthood generally, and Becket began to resist him, and Henry felt like he was losing control of, of the people, and taxes which was a source of revenue for him in the wars and everything else England did. So Becket really hurt him, and the, the, the history, the report is that he said to somebody, in the presence of other people, I wish somebody would get rid of that viper, or I can't remember what he called him. And one of the people present took it literally and went and killed him. Well, you can believe that. It, it, I hope I'm not being overly cynical. I don't know if that's just a cover-up of history. You know, it's hard for me to believe he didn't say, go kill that. But we don't know. We don't know. What we do know is that Beckett was assassinated. Remember, one of the last works we're going to do is T.S. Eliot's. We're at the end of next year, as we move back to the modern world. We're going to do T.S. Eliot's Murder in the Cathedral. It's going to be Eliot's treatment of that assassination. That's a modern speaking to an English nation. T.S. Eliot. About the assassination on the part of a king, of, uh, of, uh, of Thomas Beckett. <clears throat> we looked at the Knight's Tale, I don't want to go through it now, but um, remember that some of the major concerns there, Chaucer is going back to Theseus, Theseus is the founder of Western civilization. What he does is Christianize a pagan story because he shows that um, the condition for all the good that happens at the end is um, relinquishing one's will. Our seat, Palamon loses Emily, has to give her up. Our seat wins, but he dies, uh, he's wounded and then dies. He will give her up. Emily is asked to marry when she didn't want to marry. So the condition of love that everybody attains at the end rest on one's having to give up his will. He won't learn how to love till he puts his own will away. That's the condition of going on. And um, it's important to see that because one of the major themes is, is how, how do we reconcile um, justice and law with love or mercy? Remember, every one of those, almost everybody in the book is um, 
breaks the law or is indebted to the law. They owe a debt. And it's only by mercy. The law is not put away. It has to be met, but it's met in love. So in the, in the Knight's Tale, when the two knights do their joust, remember, they, they should have been killed because they both had violated the law. Arcee came back to Athens when he was supposed to stay away. Um, Palamon had escaped. So they both owe their lives. Theseus is going to kill them when the women are intervene, and he says, no, let's do it another way. And so this, this, this effort of reconciling law with love is as real for Chaucer as it was for Dante and as it will be for Shakespeare. Okay? The theme of the two, that is, I want to say that because we live in a modern America in which love and law have been um, isolated. It's one or the other. We're either very legalistic or we're compassionate and overlook wrongs. That's the habit in our country. The, the one produces enabling, just keep overlooking things, you enable. The other takes us back to an Old Testament. We get very legalistic. The greater struggle for us in our faith is to bring them together. That's the great struggle of our faith. The town, the city was an important concern. Remember that it begins with Theseus having conquered the Amazons and then when he comes across the women who tell him about Creon's tyranny, he has to go to Thebes. Thebes is the noble city. Um, it's, the, it's the noble pride, the dynastic pride. And Palamon and, and Arce both belong to that. They both have that noble sense of pride. The interesting thing is to watch how they turn in each other when they fall in love with a woman. The Amazons are a, um, a, a group of women who make their attachments to each other more important than men. And I mentioned it before, the Amazons are always with us. I mean, you, you, you don't have to look far to find them today. They're in the news every, every day. So the, the play, sorry, the story, the action of the story rests on two, two conquerings that have already taken place. The Amazons, these conquered and, and he conquered Hippolyta and we see that because of that they have a good relationship now and his conquering Thebes and bringing the prisoners home. Um, remember sexual love, the amour courtois tradition, um, courtly love rests on what is basically an infidelity. A knight, generally a married woman, not always with a married woman, and treats her as a liege. He's like a vassal to a king. He, he's going to give his life for this woman. Um, and that's the nature of the love between her, that um, Arcide and Palamon both have for Emily. As soon as Palamon sees her, he's stricken. As soon as Arcide sees her, he's stricken. Both men who were friends a moment before become absolute enemies because they want that woman. So they both love her. That's tension of the story and you know how it's resolved in the joust at the end. So those were the major themes. Providence was in and out of it everywhere. Okay, quickly. Shakespeare picks up the same theme, the same concern in Midsummer Night's Dream because what Midsummer Night's Dream is about is the Theseus story, the Theseus. Theseus is the founder. Um, now, just quick, two, two background pieces of information before we look at the play. It's a matter of whether, I'm not going to deal with it directly or in length here, but whether Shakespeare's Protestant or Catholic, I'm not going to touch it right now. Um, 
Shakespeare was English, um, but the Renaissance was well underway in England. It started two centuries early in Italy, and we, you all know the beginnings now. The, the, re, um, the rediscovery of Aristotle, the new academies that were platonic in character, this new learning that, that flourished in Italy, led to the development of these new communes that were independent of both the emperor and the pope. All the, the battle, cities killing each other on the basis of loyalties either to the state, the emperor, or the pope, the church. All of that got sorted out. Um, the, remember the Ghibellines owe their allegiance to the em emperor and the Guelphs to the pope. That got sorted out. The Guelphs broke into two parties. Um, the whites wanted complete independence from the pope while the blacks kept their allegiance. So the whites are the ones who are responsible for these new communes, these communes that were independent so that the choices that people made with respect to religion were their own. They didn't come to them because they grew up with them or they were forced to. So there's this new kind of communes called the commercial republic. The first one of the modern kind um, comes into existence the, the moment Dante's born. It's Florence. That's the prototype of America. We've gone through this before. That, I think that's why the Divine Comedy is prophetic in one way. He's showing us ourselves. We are a commercial republic. Our origins are that are Florence in the Renaissance. Shakespeare knew all of this. So Shakespeare's an Englishman. Um, he, he, he writes on every important regime at a time when the Holy Roman Empire is breaking down and the modern states are emerging. Okay. I'm going to repeat this in a second, but um, so he writes all these plays on England, France, Navarre, Greece, Rome, Italy. Um, Shakespeare was aware of the totalitarian character of the Tudor regime. Tudors could persecute Catholics. They could disenfranchise them. Um, they could confiscate properties. There was a totalitarian power, and you know the revolts going on between the Anglicans and the Presbyterians, and Elizabeth comes to a point of trying to make a compromise. That's the world Shakespeare's living in. Um, he's aware of the power under which he lives. Priests are getting killed. Catholics are being persecuted. They're being put in the tower and executed. It's interesting for me to read Shakespeare aware of that because if you read some of his plays, it's hard to believe he wasn't aware. Macbeth is about a, a man who's going to, who usurps, the, who kills Duncan, who kills his king. Some people would associate that with a um, gunpowder plot. Macbeth, Macbeth does it, doing, doing it with the understanding he'll get control of the line of the throne. That's his arrangement with the witches at a time when the throne has taken a position that no Catholic will ever be um, considered for authority. So this, this matter of, in, of, um, of um, succession, principle of succession, is really at stake. King Lear, Wintersdale, all deal with bastard children or wanting kids and the power of kings to do things. So he doesn't, he's not a, a, you know, out on a, on a box stumping for but so many of his plays have so directly to do with the power of kings and the abuse of power and the consequences that it's just, you know that he's aware of all this stuff. 
He writes two tetralogies on England. The first tetralogy is Henry VI, 1, 2, and 3, and Richard III, who is the most evil king of all the kings that Shakespeare dealt with. That's early in his life. Most people believe that that's his attempt to explain the nature of um, Tudor authority, that it's absolute power. Um, and if you watch that, what you see is the, the, the conditions that led to the War of the Roses. The two dynastic homes in England destroying each other. So when those two lines are destroyed, it leaves this power vacuum that's filled and the Tudors step in. Most people see that as Shakespeare's efforts to try to explain the nature of Tudor authority, that he's explaining the conditions under which he's living. As Shakespeare matures, he writes a second tetralogy. It's Richard II, Henry IV, part one and two, and, and Henry V. If you've seen Branagh's movie, Henry V, it's, I mean, if you haven't seen it, you should watch it because it's, it's just a stunning movie, just a stunning movie. Henry V is Shakespeare's treatment of probably the best Christian king. No king approaches Henry in history, except St. Louis, um, but none in Shakespeare's treatment of things. What you learn when you watch, when you read that play is this. Up until Richard II, it was understood that all kings um, carry power by divine right, the divine right of kings. Where does that come from? Um, we want a king. Who did God give the Jews a king? Who was it? Saul. They say we don't want to be like well, so we don't want to be like other nations. They give him Saul. He's divinely appointed. When things don't work out, God's and they say another. He helps. He helps get to David. So there's this understanding running through the Old Testament that. The authority of a king is divinely vested. It will, it will become articulated later as the divine right of kings. What happens in Richard II and, and Henry IV, 1 and 2 with Bolingbroke is that Bolingbroke usurps the throne. He takes it from Richard. And if you read Shakespeare closely enough, you see that what's happening then is this. England is moving from an understanding that kings have their power divinely sanctioned from God to a Machiavellian state of authority. Because what's, what's going to rule then is how well one can manipulate these lineage lines, claims on the throne. And it'll come to a point where you know where the, 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 the principle will be formulated so that no Catholic can ever come into that line. I mean, it's just, it's rationally set out. So, um, so a Machiavellian principle is introduced into the English um, royalty at that point. From Richard, if you read the plays, you, you see Richard's making claims of being divinely appointed to God. God and his angels, are, he's too arrogant. He's presumptuous. He thinks because he's got this divine right, God's going to look after him. It, it's, it's the abuse that kings make when they think they're under God, like Saul. Um, and what happens with Bolingbroke, because Bolingbroke has got to be far more politic, because he's not only got a claim on the throne, but he's going to have to fight off all of Richard's supporters. That's going to be Shakespeare's concern through that second tetralogy. So what Shakespeare's doing is um, opening up the modern world on the verge of modernity. 
Okay, this is so important to see. Um, so just that's a, just a, a brief overview um, of some of his concerns. Now, now let me go back and repeat this, but try to focus it on Midsummer Night's Dream. When you read Chaucer's Knight's Tale, you we did that in a class. You come out of it thinking this is a really simple play. It's, it really is, or a simple work. It's a story, a simple story. Um, when you read Shakespeare, and you'll see when we start going into a minute, you're going to find that he's taking the same Theseus story, but it's infinitely, infinitely more complicated. Okay? Now let me go back. Shakespeare's living at a time when the Holy Roman Empire is in collapse. The modern states with absolute powers are emerging. That's the nature of the modern state. Um, he wrote a play on every major regime in Europe. Hamlet, which to me is the uh, Reformation play par excellence. Hamlet has to do, it's in Germany, in Denmark. <coughs> Hamlet has to do with the private revelation. Where did Luther write? Wittenberg. Where did Hamlet go to school? Wittenberg. Hamlet has a private revelation. His father goes, come to him and says, avenge my death. Why can't Hamlet just kill him? And everybody goes, because that's an act of regicide. He just killed his king, his uncle. And he says, I had a private revelation. What would they say? You're nuts. Yeah, right? <laughs> what, what Shakespeare's dealing with is the complications that Luther introduces to the world because anybody can make his private understanding the arbiter of reality. It has no references to the natural world any longer. So the tensions that Hamlet faces in that story are greater almost than any, any of his characters in any other play faces. That's a Northern Reformation play, absolutely at its core. He writes plays on France, on Navarre, um, Germany, cut down. In The Tempest, he's writing about the connection between Italy and Africa. In most of the later romances, he's writing plays that take place somewhere around Italy and Bohemia, the, the, all of the states where Paul did his journeys, Ephesus and some of those eastern states. He writes four, four, plays, four plays on Rome, um, Julius Caesar, Anthony and Cleopatra, Coriolanus, and I can't remember, Titus, Andronicus. Three plays on ancient Greece, Miserate's Dream, Time out of Athens, Midsummer Dream, Time out of Athens, Troilus and Cressida. Three plays on Greece, plays on Rome, Europe. He writes as many plays on Italy as he does in England. It's roughly 17 or 18, I can't remember. He writes, say, 70 plays on, I think 17, and I think 18 on Italy. Why? There is not a regime that he doesn't cover. Now, now, hold on to this. What was Plato's great insight about the cave? Remember? Here's this fire and here are these shadows. Plato said in the Republic, we're all in this cave taking appearances for reality. <clears throat> and we think we know the truth, but we don't. So we get argumentative, we get defiant, we make claims for ourselves. One man breaks free and he sees there's this light behind him that's casting shadows. And it forms all these, here, here, these people with books, 
Here are these prisoners down here. These people with books, the fire behind them, cast these shadows. These are images on the wall. The people below take these shadows, these images, for reality. One of them breaks free and he sees what's going on. He starts to climb out of the cave. That's the allegory of the cave. We've gone through this a number of times. This is partly Plato's critique of poetry, but of any knowledge. The point that he's making is until, mostly for the poet, until a poet can get out of the cave and see the universal truths, the forms, not the shadows, it's only when he sees the forms that are universal that, that we will allow him into our city, because he's talking about the ideal city. So the condition for poetry, for Plato, is somebody has to see what's universal, because otherwise we're, we're caught in our racial, national particularities. We think we know something when we don't. We, we don't see their ultimate roots. Is that clear to everybody? Um, So the question, the question for Shakespeare, taking Plato seriously, and he clearly does, is when he treats a subject, Greece here, Theseus, does he see what's universal in the particular things going on? If he's taking Plato seriously, he would have to meet that challenge if he were to be truly a wise or philosophic poet. So let me just throw that question out. Does he do that? Let's see what happens when we look at it here. That's one. Remember for Plato, the human soul was tripartite. Remember. Reason, themos, and appetite. Sorry, this is all review, but it's so important to this play. That's in the Republic, in other words. In the Phaedrus, he says, the human soul is like a chariot, charioteer in a chariot, led by two horses. One is dark and one is white. The charioteer is reason. The white horse is thumus. The black horse is the appetites. To get on, he uses the white horse to control the black to get forward. So the rule of the soul, every soul will be unruly, out of order, until reason can control the appetites by means of this middle element. The, the translation of this is spiritedness. Or spiritedness or anger. Reason controls the appetites by means of the middle soul. T.S. Eliot, by the way, or I mean uh, C.S. Lewis in Abolition of Man makes this exact argument, exact argument. He's drawing on Plato. Too often the human soul is driven by appetites, and we use reason to justify that. That means reason's imprisoned. It's at the service of appetites. You know that we, do, we make excuses all the time. Themos, or uh, both of these are love, eros. It, when eros is directed towards noble things, the transcendence, truth, goodness, beauty, oneness, those are the transcendents. When, when love is directed towards those things, it makes the soul noble. When eros is directed towards the body, food, sex, things. You, you can all see this with Dante, right, in the Purgatorio. It was the same layout. 
When Eros is directed towards the body, it, it, it makes the man, the man more animal. He's more subject to his appetites. Sex, things, food, drink. So for the soul to finally come to itself, reason has to rule the appetites by means of the spirited element. And if, if that's not clear, the, the, the difficulty of this, um, remember two things. One, it, Plato knew that there were these two aspects to appetites, and he, gave, he, he illustrated his truth this way. He said, supposing you're a man on a desert dying from thirst and you see a pond of water. You want to live, right? You go up to the water and you want to drink. But next to the water, it says poison. What happens in that moment? How do you describe that moment? There's a conflict because one of you wants to, part of you wants to drink. Part of you saying no. We do that all the time daily. Don't eat that food, eat that food. You know, restrain yourself, no. <laughs> what he's showing is this division that part of us in the body wants to comfort ourselves. Part of us wants something better. That in itself proves that there are two aspects to desire. One that's towards something nobler, one that's towards something lower. So he, sh he made clear that there's this divided nature, this dual nature of the soul. So reason rules the appetites by means of this. And let me give another example, because we saw this in uh, the opening of the Inferno, Dante's Inferno with Francisco and Paola. Remember, Francisco and Paola are reading a book. It's about, friends, it's about um, Lancelot's adultery with uh, Guinevere. And his description is, that night they read no more. <laughs> Imagine a young teenage couple in a living room watching a sexy romance. Their parents are gone. They're both moral. They don't want to have sex. They know it's not good. And they're watching sexy scenes. How likely is it that their reason will be strong enough to overcome their appetites. Is everybody clear? I hope, because I'm assuming we all, all know this stuff, yeah? What Plato makes clear, C.S. Lewis, everybody is, reason, or put it like this, take the white horse away. How well can reason master that white horse when it's a brute? Black horse. Sorry, black horse. Right? Reason will always be overmastered. There's no way reason is strong enough to, as reason to stop us. I mean, my, my, giving you this example, when I was a young kid, I stole a knife, I remember. I knew it was wrong to steal a knife. We all know things are wrong. Does knowing them, is knowing sufficient to stop us? No. So all these men are giving us this image of a soul. Plato says the well-ordered soul is reason controlling the appetites by means of this. It's pulling the soul into its proper order. Okay? Now, what do we have? And Plato identifies the three appetites in terms of the city. Where are the three orders of the soul in Midsummer Night's Dream? <clears throat> who are the rulers? Theseus and Apollyta. Who are the nobles? Lysander, Helena, Demetrius. What governs the, the nobles? Passions. 
desires. The greatest passion of all, the desire for beauty. What's at issue among that, those, th those two couples is the way in which their eyes get so taken by the beauty outside of them, they want it. They want it. What, what, what drove, what governed Palamon and Arcidi? Beauty of Emily. Nobody's in the dark about this. What awakens desire in the human soul is beauty. Beautiful woman, beautiful car, beautiful home, beautiful garden. The, the, the power that beauty has over us is enormous. Remember Dante in the Siren episode, what happens, what, or, or in the Odyssey, what happens when men come to the Siren and hear the beauty of her singing? They're gone. The, the, wait, the, the island is surrounded, um, strewn with um, skeletons. So, here, now to go back, to, to make this point. Chaucer's, I want to slow down here, Chaucer is writing um, when England's united in its faith. Okay, it's looking back to the Holy Roman Empire, these new communes are developing, but it's still virtually united in its faith. So when he, when he tells the story of this pilgrimage, this epic of, of this nation on its way to St. Thomas Becket's throne, it's a much simpler condition. Are any, of those, are any of those people in a condition where they have to question their faith? Do any of them do that? No, they don't. They do not. What's happened at Shakespeare's time? Shakespeare's writing late 16th century, early 17th century. 1568, somewhere in there. What's happened? Um, he's just barely over 100 years away from the Reformation. The, the authority that he's living under is the product of what Henry did when he broke from Rome. England's divided. Catholics are persecuted. The Copernican Revolution has occurred that forced everybody to question everything. So it's a time of doubt. Whenever people go through periods where they have to question fundamentals, it's a time of great metaphysical thinking because they, they can't take their beliefs for granted anymore. They have to go back and look at basic things. That's true of every, it was true of Einstein and Darwin in our time. So no period in history has ever occurred like that without this great flowering of thinking. Philosophy, mostly in philosophy, the arts, and the literature. It happened in the Renaissance. It's happening today. Is that clear? Nobody lived at that time that, who didn't question his faith because um, when, they, when, when Copernicus showed that, um, that the Ptolemaic scheme was wrong and the church vested part of its authority on that model, what happened when you show that model's wrong? You begin to question the authority of the church. Everything, the authority of everything. So it's a time of great questioning. It's a great a time of great skepticism, doubt, okay? Um, so Shakespeare lives in a far more complicated world. People are doubting. Um, it's no longer just about this love tradition, amour courtois. It's also about ordering the city. That was not a major concern for Chaucer. It is now for Shakespeare. Now, let me just ask it this way. At the end, so Theseus and Apollota, the lovers, the mechanics. What's the motive for the mechanics putting on their play? 
Why do they do it? Hmm? Ooh, you're all too good. They do it for money. <laughs> well, they do. At the end of the play, when Bottom returns, they're all worried because they think if Bottom doesn't get here, think about all the money he's going to lose. And Bottom suddenly shows up and they're, oh, seven pence, ten pence. Or they want it for remuneration. Mechanic, mecha well, put it are the mechanics motivated by a love of beauty? No. Are the nobles, or sorry, the lovers motivated by any concern for money? No. So the three classes of the city are there. My question is, at the end of the play, has Shakespeare not only or helped order the souls of the individuals involved in these conflicts, has he ordered the city? At the end of the play, are the three classes of the people together? Yes. yes. So he's dealing with a far more complicated problem. What's ironic is this play is so funny I mean, it's just comic when you read it. it but if you look at what he's doing with it, it's one of the most profound plays he's written because he's tackling all these things. So quickly, I want to just, before we, and then I'll take questions, but just quickly to, so. You better look at your watch. I told you we were going to, oh, we have plenty of time. <laughs> <laughs> you go away. God. <laughs> Um, <laughs> the voice of realism in our marriage. One of them, one of them, one of them. Here, quickly, what's the difference between, what's the similarities between the two plays? Quickly, Theseus is the founder of both. The Theseus in Midsummer Night's Dream is a far more realized person. The relationship between him and Hippolyta is far more well worked out. I want to look at some quotes. Um, so as rulers, they're far more believable, just in terms of their relationship. Um, another similarity is the lovers both love one woman. When the play starts, Lysander loves Hermia, so does Demetrius. Demetrius can't have her because Lysander, unless he follows Aegeus' rule, and this is going to get to the heart of a problem here. Um, um, when... Let's see. Um, it's going to get confused, too, because when the drops get put on Lysander's eyes, he's going to love um, Helena. She's going to feel embarrassed. The two women, then, are going to hate each other, exactly the way the men did, and fights are going to turn up everywhere. So there's this great potential for violence everywhere in the lovers, okay? The other major theme, reconciling justice with love. You know how important that is in Night's Tale, we went over it. The, the problem is central to Midsummer Night's Dream. The play begins when Theseus says, I wooed you with a sword, and I will, there at peace, he and Hippolyta. Immediately, Aegeus comes in as the father and says, I want the law on my daughter. I want her to marry Demetrius. She refuses. She's disobedient to her father. Theseus does what I, I believe he should do. He supports the father and says, well, does it harshly, but he says, Mayor, obey your father's will or die or go to a nunnery. So immediately the, the, the conflict is law and love. And at this point, love's threatened. 
it's at risk. Because if Hermia doesn't marry Demetrius, um, she's going to die. This is like Merchant of Venice with Antonio. She's going to die. So the problem is, um, it's, it's multiform. Um, she either can form and sacrifice her love and come under the law, or she dies. So immediately there's this problem between law and love, justice and mercy. Okay. Um, how, how to order that? I can't tell you how big this is. You'll see it in, in a few, I hope if we get there, you'll see it in a few minutes. It's what Shakespeare does with this is nothing short of amazing. What are the differences? The differences are major, major, major. One of the differences is the complexity that I mentioned a minute ago. This is a far more complicated play. Shakespeare's on the verge of modernity and what he, the problems that he's dealing with are m much more vast than any Chaucer did. Um, what's the focus in Knight's Tale? On the ordeal, the joust. Remember in the Middle Ages when there was a disagreement, they had to fight a duel. The understanding would, whoever won would show God's providence. It was a proof that God wanted that person to win. That was the assumption of, a, of the ordeal. So how are Palamon and Thesi, or our seat going to answer this problem? Who gets Emily? Or, or how they resolve the fact that they, sh they should have been executed because they were both in violation of the law? They have this ordeal. The focus of the knight's tale is this ordeal. A fight. What's the focus of Midsummer Night's Dream? It's marriage. Right? Play begins with Theseus and Hippolyta talking about marriage. How does it end? With the entertainment following their wedding. The focus on Midsummer Night's Dream is a marriage and resolution of differences on a number of different levels. The souls, the city. So marriage becomes the focus here, the defining intuition, the germ of the... How do you bring love and law together? In Knight's Tale there were two cities. It was the Thebes and the Amazons in Shakespeare, this is so typical of him, there are two settings. The city, Athens, and the forest. Mm -hmm. And this is where it gets interesting. This is where it gets really where we're complicated. The forest is a place of shadows, of images. Um, think about Plato's cave, the shadows, the images. They hover um, over and says, king of the shadows. We're in a realm of shadows that everything that goes on there is in a f world of fancy. Now hold on to this. The law is the defining image of Athens, and the law as it's presented is at odds with love. There's no place for it in the beginning. The defining image of the forest um, is shadows. Um, and interestingly, Oberon and Titania are both at odds the way Theseus and Hippolyta once were. What's the issue? Hippolyta is so attached to this boy because this boy belonged to a woman of her train. She wants that boy. And the issue between Oberon and Titania is who should have it? Theseus wants it. I'm going to make this argument. It may upset Oberon. some people. Oberon wants it. It's a boy. If you watch what 
Hippolyta, I mean, Titania does with bottom, you see that the tendency in her, I think as a woman, is nurturing, spoiling, giving what he wants. In the scene after Bottom wakes up, you remember he says, Peace Bottom, scratch my head, go get me some honey, do this, do that. It's the feminine in its delicacy lacking the firmness of a man. Theseus wants that boy because he's a boy, his ultimate end is, is a man. They're quarreling, she won't give it to him. And you know that he, he puts that love potion on her eyes and that's where things begin to get confused. Now hold on to two things here. One is we're in a world of the imagination and at the center of everything goes on is this love potion. And remember when Oberon describes it, he says, um, I'll look at it, sorry. He says, Cupid shot his bolt This is Act 2, Scene 1. You don't have to go there. Um, as it should pierce a hundred smartly from his bow, as it should pierce a hundred thousand hearts. But I might see young Cupid's fiery shaft quenched in the chaste beams of the watery moon. And the imperial votress passed on in maiden meditation fancy free. Yet marked I where the bolt of Cupid fell. Notice he's perceptive enough to see where this happened. Cupid is the god of love. She's, uh, he's um, Aphrodite's child, okay? It fell upon a, a little western flower, not eastern, western, before milk white, now purple with love's wound, and maidens call it love in idleness. Fetch me that flower, the herb I showed thee once. When he puts it on eyelids, the first thing that a person sees, that person will, will fall dotingly in love. So, a couple of things we have to deal with here. The city law, the forest, the world of the imagination, and at the center of it is this power that this herb has, this potion, for awakening this desire of the, anything in front of it. And you, you know that what's going on here, this is interesting. Theseus is the ruler of the political realm. Oberon's the ruler of the imagination. What, Ober, what Oberon does with that potion brings everything right. And he uses it differently according to the person. Puck mistakenly puts it on Lysander's eyes. Oberon has to or, use a counter potion to take off the effects. He uses it on um, Titania's eyes to make Titania fall in love with an ass. And it's, it's interesting, it's right at a time when Bottom is being an ass, <coughs> so don't let <coughs> So he puts it on and takes it off according to the needs. So everything that he's doing makes everything okay, come out right. And let me just simplify this because I want to get to this point because we're almost out of time because I want to ask a question. What he does makes it possible for him to get the boy to bring the lovers together. When Theseus and Hippolyta and Aegeus come to the edge of the forest, the lovers are together. Um, Aegeus says, I want the law. It's very much like Shylock in Merchant of Venice. I want the law. The lovers are describing how they're well settled. They're okay. And Theseus says, I overbear your will. So he gives political sanction to what happened. 
Now, nothing could have turned out right if it had not been for Oberon in the forest. But it's clear that everything that he did has to receive political sanction at the end. Because it's only when Theseus says, I overbore your, bear your will, that the lovers come back. So at the end, love and law are reconciled. Now hold on, I want to make one more point before I go to this question. It's really clear at the beginning of this movie, that, or play, that, law, that love is a threat to the city. It's, it's order, right? Um, it's a threat. It can disturb, throw, it undermine the father's obedience, the, the, cent, the center of human relationships, the obedience, the, law, the authority of a father. So love is a threat to the city. Theseus is backing that up when he says, obey your father's will or go to an owner or die. The, the lovers can only get back to the city so that love and law are reconciled because of what Oberon did. Okay? Now, what did he do? Hold on, hold on. This is the end. Next, next week, when we start, we're going to have to come back. I'm just going to... This is the end of the play. You know, when the mechanics rehearse the play, how comical it is. And you know in the very first scene, Bottom wants to be everything. He can't hear um, what's the leaders, Quince, talk about a part without Bottom saying, I'll do that. We all know people, if a project comes up, where some people go, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. Oh, I mean, they just, you know that some people want to take over. Bottom is bottomless Eros. That's who he is. He's bottomless Eros. Can't do enough. It's interesting, when Bottom has that dream, when he goes to sleep, when he comes out of a dream, he says, um, I've seen a dream past the wit of men. I have not heard, I have not heard, ear has not seen. What are those allusions to? Hmm? Yeah, to what? Yeah, Paul. Paul says, I have not seen, ear hath not heard, bottom always gets things. Apparently, he's had a vision of something supernatural, and it enters the poem through an ass. But, but he's speaking about things of which men don't know. So in Boethius, Providence was named. There's nothing supernatural going on here that we're aware of, except through Bottom's dream. So there are these tensions between law and love, justice and mercy, and between law and whatever we're going to make of the imagination. Now, one last thing, and, and I've got a question and we'll stop. When the lovers put on the play finally, when Bottom comes back and they can actually carry it off, you know that Pyramus and Thisbe are lovers, and they meet at this wall. In all the scenes dealing with, the, in that one scene early on when they're dealing with rehearsing, every one of those exchanges has to do with representation. How are we going to represent a wall? I'll be the wall. Are we going to represent moonlight? I'll carry in a lamp. Shakespeare's having fun with artistic representation. You can laugh at it all. This, this guy's extraordinary. What he's really talking about is how you represent something. Now remember, he's just represented a very realistic story about rulers and lovers and, and mechanics. The question is, how well did he represent it? What did he represent? That's the question the mechanics are raising. 
how do you represent a wall, how do you represent a lantern, and, um, and, and, and Bottom says, be sure you don't eat garlic before we go, because we've got to have sweet breath. So the mechanics are very literal-minded. How can a poet render something to help his audience reorder its own souls and still do it in such a way that he's reordering the city? Now, how is that for a task? Is everybody following? Or was that... No, hold on. No? He's dealing with a problem Chaucer wasn't. He's not just dealing with how to rule, how to produce a well-ruled soul and the rulers of the craft. He does that with each group. He's also trying, if he's taking Plato seriously, he's also got to bring those three groups together. The rulers, the nobles, the mechanics. Does he do it at the end? Yes, he does. How did he do it? What's he doing in this play that Chaucer wasn't? Okay? Now here's, to me, one of the greatest ironies of the story. The mechanics are putting on this play, Pyramus and Thisbe are going to meet at this wall. Um, Pyramus comes and discovers that she's not there and kills himself. And she comes along and sees, I think, a torn cloth, a lion came, and she thinks he's dead. She kills herself. Where are they meeting? This is in uh, the prologue. By moonlight did these lovers them to no scorn to meet at Ninus's tomb, there, there to woo. Over and over again, mention is meant. Wilt thou at Nini's tomb meet me straight away? So, this amazes me. Some people take this to be Nini, like Nini, Nini, you know. Who's Ninus? Ninus is the legend, this is so crucial. Ninus is the legendary founder of, of Nineveh. His wife, Simeranus, was the legendary founder of Babylon. What's Shakespeare doing? This is absolutely crucial to play. Do Pyramus and Thisbe get back to the city? Under the law. No. No, they don't. They're dead. They're dead. They're dead. They're dead. This play is like Chaucer's is principally about refounding. Every epic has been. What's the condition for refounding in Chaucer? Each person has to learn to give up his own will, right? He baptizes Theseus' story. That is, he renew, recreates the past, Christianizes it. Is everybody okay? That's Chaucer, right? Chaucer taken the Theseus story and made it Christian. There's no way for those lovers to get together. There's no way for Theseus to answer all those problems unless everybody gives up their will. And we know that according to Boethius, Providence is working in. Here, Shakespeare is making us aware that the lovers in the West, remember this is a Western flower, the lovers here get back to the city. So what's going on in the West that's not going on in the East? What is that flower who is Oberon? Now let me stop. Is that clear? Because this is fundamental to, to this play and what Shakespeare's doing with the Theseus story and carrying it forward. Is everybody following me?
the lovers in the East. Th what, ha what, happened, what happened in the West that made it possible to bring law and love together? They gave up their will. That's Chaucer. Somebody ex more explicitly. What happened in the West? Christ. 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 Oh. Right? Everything in Dante. What's the whole move, move, movement, the action of the Commedia? To bring the law and mercy together in order to know forgiveness and union with God. Christ comes into the world. He said, I didn't come to, to break the law. I came to fulfill it. Everything he did was to fulfill the law. Not the, all the accretions that the Jews add to it, to fulfill his father's <coughs> law. What's the action of purgatory? Every one of the sinners is under, undergoing a discipline to answer the laws that they broke by their sins in a spirit of mercy. What's Chaucer doing with law? and love in Nightsdale, same thing. What's Shakespeare doing here? Same thing. It's bringing law and love together. Okay? Does the East recognize a power greater than the law? No. Christ is not there. Not in Judaism, not in Islam. So Shakespeare's dealing with a really profound thing here. My question, is everybody okay? Is this, yeah. My question is, is everybody okay? These, my question, what's going on in the forest? Who is Oberon? What is that flower? What is Shakespeare doing there? This play is so funny. I, think about this. I'm sure that when most people come out of the theater, they're, they're laughing rollickly. I mean, it's just a funny play. A thought about any of this? Absolutely not. And yet, when you look at the play, you know, the Platonic aspects or the Christian aspects, law and love, East and West, you see a young poet, still relatively young here, you see a young poet, he's not, he's not in the tragedies, or the romances, Winter's Tale and Twelfth Night, and the, or, or Pericles, which are those, what I call sacramental plays, they're just extraordinary. He's not there yet, this is a young man. It's funny, but it's extraordinarily profound in what he sees. So my question right now is, how do we understand the forest? It's what Oberon does that makes it possible for the lovers to get back. I hope everybody sees that. And, and once they're okay, it requires Theseus' sanction. He has to say, I do overbear your will. So whatever takes place in the forest has to be validated, ratified, sanctioned by Theseus. Whatever goes on in the forest in the imagination has, has to receive the sanction of a political authority for this to happen. So we're looking at a really complex relationship there. Okay? So my question is, what, how do we understand the forest? Who is over it? Let me stop for a second. Are any, any questions about just the way I've laid it out? Is everybody clear on what I'm presenting? Before we, I want to give you all a minute to try to answer that question about what do we make of the, but are you all clear in the way I've laid it out? Good. Okay. Uh, I have a question. Yeah. I don't, I don't get why, uh, and I'm trying to remember what the names are, uh, Bisbee and Hermes. Why they 
why they commit suicide. I, I didn't. Period of vividity? Yeah. Desperation. Well, ro ro at what? Is there any way I mean, to on the, on the surface, romantic love? But right. On the I can't live without you. you think one thinks right. one is dead, and so is there. I, I get that. I mean, on the surface, I understand, but is is does that have something to do with what Oberon's role is? I mean, I, I don't know. I'm not following the question, I'm not, sorry. I'm not following it either. I would say the first answer is the, 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 what's behind it is here, I mean, let me try to put this more realistically. God made all of us in his image. The East doesn't know Christ the way the West has. The West has, has been a Christian civilization, was at that time, more than now. Um, we think of Christianity as has gone out more since the 16th century. Um, but if God made everybody in his image, then everybody should want to love and have an infinite love. That is, everybody should love the way Christ did. Does the East know that? No. So if you've got this longing to love in any human being, and you live in modern China, or you live under an Eastern regime, Iran or Iraq, say, in which the law makes no place for love as we've come to know it in the West. Because that Christianity would pose a threat to Islam, China. Be because Christ's love is transcendent. He brings a transcendent power into the world in, in states that are totalitarian. China's going to make a place for Christ? So in the East, you, you, we've got, my, my reading, right? you've got two couples who have this longing but the way it's treated in the play is there's this wall there. I think that's an image of the father's law. And one commits suicide and the other thinks, or, yeah, they leave. One commits suicide and, isn't that? And then well, the other. He, 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 he commits suicide because he thinks the lion got the, her, her. Right. She comes by and finds, you know, finds the, out that the he, right. it, it's a Romeo and Juliet kind of Right. Thing. So they commit suicide. For, so my reading of it is it's, it's romantic love. It's a couple saying, I can't live without you. They kill themselves. There's nothing to live for. If there's nothing in the world that can allow you to fulfill that love, what do you do? That's an oppressive condition. Shakespeare's, and Shakespeare's showing it's potentially there in the forest that the lovers are going to kill each other. So he's dealing with the violence of emotions, just the way Chaucer did. Now the passions can take over and make us do things we regret. But in Midsummer Night, the point I'm making is in Midsummer Night's Dream, the passions are resolved, and they're resolved in such a way that the lovers can come back to the city where love and law are not incompatible. In the East, there's still, the law is higher than love, which is one of the problems in the East still today. Um, so my question, my question, let me just, and I'll just take a minute, just my question to you all is, how do we understand the forest? Who's Oberon? How do we understand him? And what is this love potion? Because, it, and remember, the, I, I didn't, if, I, if I'd gone through the play, you can't read 20 lines without coming across the word I. Again and again, and I looked in his eyes, he looked in mine. I wish I had her eyes. The love potion gets put on the eyes. So seeing beauty and the desires that beauty awakens, the passions that beauty awakens, 
It's a grave danger. So what, how do we look at the forest? Who's Oberon? And what is this love potion that he works with? Those are my questions to you guys. Anybody want to take a stab before we leave? Next week we'll come back to it. We'll finish this up and I'll do a wrap up. But I hope everybody sees how profound this is, what Shakespeare's dealing with. This is early on in his life. Um, any thoughts about the forest or Oberon or the love? Remember, the love potion is white flower that turns purple with love's wound. Sounds very Christ-like crucifixion for me, but I, go ahead. Lois? Yeah. Come on. Well, I, Come on. I don't know if I'm as advanced on this as, as you want us to be, but I mean, to me, I'm not of, expecting anything. There's kind I'm of just, an intervention of clarity. Say again? It's kind of an intervention of clarity, if you will. Sort of a, you know, you've, got, you've got emotions running amok, so to speak. And th there's, it's, it's obviously kind of a dreamlike state and somewhere in that. It's anything but clear. It's all shadows and but well, But, but, but I, I think what happens in the forest is an intervention. What Oberon does in essence is an intervention of clarity that somehow ultimately they see beyond just the emotion and that there's more there than just beauty. The, the, the strangeness in how it ultimately occurs, I'm not sure I've got all the pieces to, but that's ultimately to me what kind of happens. And so when you, only until you get some clarity like that, do you, do you have the ability then for the reason, you know, the, the, the two nobles, I mean, the, the um, Theseus and Hippolyta then have the ability to come in and, and, and get people to see that balance. Except they already—they don't do anything at that point. It's done. Well, just, but I, I don't think. But they kind of seal it. But I mean, if you're not ready to receive that, then you're not gonna. I mean, you know, you're not gonna accept it, right? You have to have—you have, have to have experienced something that makes it, makes you able to do that, and that's kind of what happens in the forest. Tuck, what, do you have a response? Clarity, what? Well, I think clarity maybe sounds more rational than than I would put it but but what the I what the love potion does <clears throat> does clarify what it does is it makes clear the beauty of what you're seeing so or exaggerate it you can love an ass yeah. and and then be embarrassed I'll <laughs> <laughs> well, start over again <laughs> no I was thinking more of, of Demetrius recognizing the beauty and then, right, 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 right. Yeah. Instead of, yeah. But it's but to go back to, it's interesting that the way it's used it is different for different people. That in Demetrius's case, it helps him to see a beauty that was there. He'd already seen it before and left it. He makes that clear. Mm -hmm. But in other cases, um, something has to be done. In, in Titania's case, she has to be helped to see that that there's something in her too doting, too. Too spoiling, you know. The, here, let me ask because I'm, I'm going to clarify. I guess that's, no, wait. I yeah, mean, each, each one here, found me, a clarity, although that clarity was different. Yeah. Let me offer this because I want. I'm a little bit nervous about the word clarity for the reason that Suzanne gave because 
Shakespeare's really clear that the city is a place of reason. I would say re law, reason, clarity. Um, Theseus can do what he does because he recognizes now love is ordered. So for him to uphold Aegeus' law at that point would introduce an element of discord everywhere because what he, what he would do is force the couple, all the couples would be at odds with each other. He'd force Demetrius to marry Hermia when Demetrius now loves Helena. So it's anything but clarity. I mean, the, the, he does it because they're ordered now. And love, because of what Oberon did, the, the lovers can come to the city and law and love can get together because of what happened there. Let me just offer this and then I'm going to dismiss it abruptly because I really want you guys to think about this. Is there any way in which what goes on in the forest can be described in terms of poetry and not making things clear of helping the lovers to work through love and passions without completely understanding them because of what's done with the feeling. Because remember, I've been saying from the beginning, one of the things that poetry helps us to do is order our emotions to bring them in line with reason. Because it's that musical component of poetry that's working while reasons is going on because poetry consists of statements. Things are being said, things are being done. So I've, I've tried to use the analogy with a symphony. That when you have the overture in a symphony, I believe it's its purpose is to quiet the rational mind, to prepare the mind for what it's about to experience in a symphony. Is there any way in which we're supposed to look at what goes on in the forest in terms of poetry? Let me just offer one more thought. Oberon and Titania, this is stunning. You hear, this is Jung, 20th century psychologist. Jung and Freud divided on these things. I, I think Jung is so much more sound than Freud. God. Jung said, every man and woman have in them an, an animus and an anima principle. Every woman has an animus in her, a man. She's ready to fight. Every man has a woman, an anima, in him. So that because we, I mean, we know that. We have mothers and fathers for parents. The, the male and female is in each of us. Except they get sublimated, hidden, you know. So every human soul, every man has an anima, a, a, a female, a woman in him. How well does his life bring those together? Does a man just stay rigidly under the law? Does he make a place for emotions? Every woman has an animus that male animus, aggression, or how well does she do? Lots of women can let that animus take over. They can just become brutally rigid. How well does each one of us integrate the male-female parts of our characters? We know from the play that Oberon's attachment is to who? Boy. Boy. No, 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 to, no, sorry. Well, it is to the boy. Hippolyta? To, to, in the pair, Theseus, because they both say, in, in the pair, Theseus and Hippolyta, both of them are enamored of that pair, but opposite. Who is Oberon enamored of? Titania. His, she, Titania, I mean, Hippolyta. Titania gets on him and says, you're spending all your time watching after that woman. I mean, she shows her jealousy. And, she's, and he says, why are you saying this? Because you spend all your time looking after Theseus. 
So we've got images in Oberon and Titania of the archetypal counterpart of Theseus and Hippolyta. Okay. Set this next to Chaucer. Who is Oberon if the, if the force is a world of shadows and the imagination? Is it showing? And Shakespeare makes this clear in that, look, go back and look at the first scenes with the mechanics, where they're trying to figure out how they're going to put the, they need a wall. Let this be the wall, and this will be the chink. And let moonlight be this. That is, how do you represent, how does the poet work? And sh should he take garlic if he's going to speak in a book? You know, I mean, all of this stuff that Shakespeare's having fun with. How does a poet do what he does? How, what is Oberon doing? Is there any way in which he images the work of the imagination the way Theseus images the work of reason in the city? What is he doing with emotions? What is he doing with shadows? Because it's only by what he does at that level. This is not a place of clarity. It's a, it's a place of moonlight, shadows. And what is moon symbolic of? Lunacy, Lunacy madness. That there's all this stuff how much does it image the unconscious? So I'm asking, you know, there's a lot going on in the forest that we can just... But there's no way the lovers get back without everything that Oberon does. So who is Oberon? What's he doing? Is there some way in which this tells us something about the imagination and the way the imagination works that reason cannot? This is absolutely outside of Theseus's what we'd call today expertise, competence. Something's going on there. What's going on? Let's stop. Quiz next week. <laughs> Half hour quiz. I think I have to work that day. <laughs> what did you say? <laughs> you big, you big chicken. <laughs> hey, I gave it a shot. <laughs> I want to. Look what happened. I, I, oh, stop! I'm, I'm always glad.